This episode is sponsored by Hire.com. Hire.com is offering a new freelancing and contracting offering. They have multiple companies that will provide you with contract opportunities. They cover all the tracking, reporting, and billing for you. They handle all the collections and pre-fund your paycheck. They offer legal and accounting and tax support. And they'll give you $2,000 when you've been on a contract for 90 days. But with this link, they'll double it to $4,000 instead. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Freelancer Show. This episode is sponsored by Nerd.us. Do you wish that somebody else would handle all of those operation details when it comes to hosting your client's web applications? Nerd.us is a Ruby on Rails managed hosting designed to make your life easy. They migrate everything for you, and new signups or referrals come with a $100 discount or a referral fee. To sign up, go to freelancershow.com slash nerd. That's freelancershow.com slash N-I-R-D, and enter freelancer into the contact form for a discount. If you're someone who runs your own service-based business, then spending less time on pesky admin tasks means having more time to focus on your client's work, which is why you need to give FreshBooks a try. FreshBooks is the invoicing solution that makes it incredibly simple to create and send invoices, track your time, and manage your expenses. It allows you to quickly see and track the status of your invoices, expenses, and projects, and allows you to keep track of your expense receipts in FreshBooks. For your free 30-day trial, go to freshbooks.com slash freelancers and enter the Freelancer Show in the How Did You Hear About Us section when signing up. This week's episode of the Freelancer Show is brought to you by Earth Class Mail. Earth Class Mail moves your stale mail into the cloud, giving you instant access 24-7 and integrates with the tools and services you use every day. It's crazy that we've moved everything we do for the business over to the digital world, but still need to pick up, sort, and manage physical mail. With Earth Class Mail, you can get all of your mail scanned and accessible online 24-7. You can search your mail, send invoices over to your accounting software, sync important documents into cloud storage, deposit checks, and really just make running your business a whole lot easier. You also get real professional address to share publicly with customers, business partners, and investors. And you'll never need to worry about someone showing up at your door if you run your business from home. Visit freelancershow.com slash mail and you'll get your first month of service free when you sign up. Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode number 180 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Jonathan Stark. Hello. And Philip Morgan. Hi there. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And this week we are going to be talking about when projects go wrong. Who here has ever had a project go wrong? Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yeah, I'm going to raise my hand there too. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of inevitable. So, how do you know when a project's gone wrong? Like, Philip, when you said you've had a project gone wrong, like, was it? you just had this sinking feeling that you knew it was off the rails or going off the rails or was the client just like out of nowhere hit you with a freak out email or something? You know, for me, I would say nine times out of 10, it, it's kind of how I'm wired, right? I'm a little bit more on the emotional side of things. So I feel myself not wanting to talk to the client because I feel some shame about how things are going. I mean, that's like my early warning detection system for a project gone wrong. I does it turn have out to be had, true usually though, or is it is it just in your head? You know, I would say that it's true much less than a hundred percent of the time. I'm not systematic about tracking this stuff, so but let's say it's true maybe half the time. Maybe half the time I you know, my kind of emotional seismograph is saying, Yeah, there's something not quite right here and if I am not eager to hop on the phone with a client something's less than it should be. Uh, and then the other half of the time, it's just that I have higher standards for things than my client does. I mean, it, it tends to boil down to that. So that's how it works for me. I'm kind of curious for you guys how, how you know things are 
headed off the rails. I've got a similar early detection system. I don't maybe it doesn't bug me as much, but I notice it. And you know, I can imagine I can remember times when I've been on a retainer, a long term retainer gig where somebody's paying me five figures per month to do X, Y, and Z, you know, mostly just jump on phone calls and stuff. And and just being like they're they're gonna tell me on this phone call that this is the last month, I'm sure of it. You know, like they're gonna fire me this month for sure. It's been three years. I don't feel like, you know, there's no way you I can be delivering the same value three years into a project because the, all the low hanging fruit's gone. The incremental benefit of the things that I'm offering is lower. And it's almost, you know, and you get on the phone and I'm like, wow, I can't believe they didn't fire me. But then then that triggers in me, well, maybe I should fire myself because I don't feel like I'm delivering as much value. They still seem to be getting the value out of it. So maybe we should have a conversation about it. And I actually have done that uh, because it is that it's, it's an uncomfortable feeling to feel like you're delivering less value than you were, even if the customer is still totally happy with the ROI. But if we're talking about like a software project, for me, when something goes wrong, it's usually that the project's going long and that there was some deadline real or imagined or tentative or, you know, penciled in or whatever. And we're way past that. And for me, it's never been a huge problem because I don't build by the hour. So going past the deadline hurts only me mm-hmm. and the clients generally are pretty cool with it. In the rare, there have been some rare exceptions where a little ways into a project, maybe 20 or 40, 20 to 40 hours in, I've been like, this is not going to work. And I just give them their money back, basically. Yeah, there, it seems like there's kind of a an objective quality to this idea of whether a project's going well or not, and then a more subjective part of it. So maybe we should keep that in mind as we kind of go through the discussion on this. Well, first, first of all, I think that if I feel bad about a project or if I don't want to talk to them on the phone, then I know in my heart of hearts that it's not going well. And yet sometimes I'll be in sort of denial. I'll be like, well, I'm sure it's okay. And well, like I'll just get it done soon and then they'll be happy. Right. But probably if I'm not feeling good about it, then they're feeling even worse. But there are times when I'm surprised in both directions. I mean, there are times when I just recently, I remember meeting with a client and helping them with something and thinking to myself, Really? Like, they paid me for that? <laughs> I, I didn't really offer them that much. But their response was they were overwhelmingly delighted. And I think to some degree that's a matter of, like, as being an expert, you sort of lose track of what sort of value you're bringing. And you don't realize how much something that's very banal for you and very everyday for you is is really useful for them. But then, like, you know, sometimes people will totally come out of left field and surprise me saying they're completely dissatisfied. Um, where the, the most extreme version of that was I, I gave the first day of a course and I walked out and I got a call saying, that's also the last day of the course. <laughs> I was like, what, 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 oh, do, wow. what do you mean? What happened? And, and they said, well, we did come to you at lunch and say it would be nice if you went a little faster. I was like, yeah. And, and they said, and you didn't go faster. And so we're canceling the rest of the course. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> so they were just a little crazy, but usually there's a little more communication than that. And usually you can sort of feel what's going on. And then hopefully, I guess we'll talk about this a little bit, like take, take steps to improve it and fix it. Yeah. I mean, to me, this all kind of points to that setting expectations at the beginning of the project. Right. I, and I wonder if, if every project that goes off the rails doesn't, uh, the seeds of that 
going off the rails aren't at the beginning of the project in terms of how expectations are set. So I think that's a question for the group is, you know, how do you set expectations at the outset? Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. And I, I think that two things come to mind. One is that since I don't bill by the hour when I'm doing software stuff, I'm forced to come up with some other metric to gauge progress. Mm. And that can be something in the website analytics or it could be, um, you know, people just generally be happy, you know, group, having weekly design meetings to uh, make sure that we're on track with, you know, the original goals or whatever, whatever it is, it needs to be explicit in the proposal. And then on top of that, once you have the explicit measures for progress toward the goal, you need to be very communicative. So I, I typically say that I touch every customer once a day. So if there, sorry, at least one customer a day, and I don't have that many customers. So, you know, if I've got three customers, three active customers, I make sure to be in touch with them one way or the other, at least one of them per day. And if I guess if I had a lot of customers, I'd make sure to talk to, not talk to, but either update Basecamp or send an email or update Slack. You know, once up to at least once a day would be great if you have got if you get the bandwidth to do that and actually code. But um, you need to be in, in touch with people a lot more than I think most developers feel like they want to. Like they just want to go in the basement and code. And you know, on, on the weekly review, they'll show up and demo what they've done, and that's not enough. I, it needs to be multiple times throughout the week at the least. I think. Uh, I think you're totally spot on there. Like additional communication and like constant communication makes such, such, such a difference. Not just in that they know you're alive and working on their thing, but first of all, because they'll then feel more open to talk to you, right? They'll say, oh, well, how about, how about, how about, and they'll see the communication line open. And if and when something goes wrong, and now, of course, I'm thinking about this project that I'm on now, which is dragging out and which I feel bad about and so on and so forth. But if something goes wrong and you have to apologize, They'll be like, oh, that's okay. We understand you've been working on it. You need to take a break now. As opposed to, what? <laughs> like, you haven't talked to us for three weeks, and now you're also telling us you're going to be late? Right. There's another thing in the expectations that you just uh, triggered uh, is that in my proposals, I'll put a section on risks and assumptions. And what that does is it lists out all the things that are still squishy and historically, just in my experience, are pro problematic. And what I'll do, I mean, it could be anything from doing a database migration to getting SSL set up on a web server and all the follow-on effects from that. And I'll just list them out. And sometimes it'll be as, I mean, it could be as many as 20 things. And what that does is that when one of those things does crop up, or maybe more than one of them, then you can say, well, we knew this was a risk, and uh, it did crop up, and we'll deal with it. As opposed to, you know, just like, whoops, the SSL certificate broke the, uh, whatever, the shopping cart or the preview in the iframe. And then it's, it looks like, makes you look like less of an expert and it probably makes the, I, I think it's safe to say it makes the customer feel like you're less in control and less of an expert than they thought they hired. So I think calling out the things that could blow up in your face makes it a lot less damaging when they do blow up in your face. Now, Jonathan, when you say that you you're in touch with a client, like, you know, say one a day, what does that mean? Does it just mean like an up, does it mean an update on what you're doing? Does it mean a question to them? Does it mean you want to set a meeting? Could it be any of those? It could be any of those. Usually it's, uh, I manage all my 
software projects in Basecamp. So usually it's just going into Basecamp at least. Yeah. I mean, if I have a, if I have a project that requires Basecamp, I'm going to go in there pretty much every day. Maybe depending on my schedule, if I have like a speaking gig or something, maybe it's once every two days at the, at the least once every three days, go in and respond to any questions that have come up. If somebody is loaded a bunch of to do's in there, I will let them know that I at least saw the to do. You know, I'll either move it to a, uh, into from like an inbox to a dev list or I'll ask some question about it to clarify. But, uh, you want them to feel like, even though I'm not billing by the hour and they don't have to wonder if the, the meter is running, if the clock's ticking, they still want to feel like you're engaged. And, you know, this is like any other relationship, I suppose, because that's what it is. It's a relationship. Mm-hmm. You need to, uh, whatever communication channel you, chose you need to be relatively active in there otherwise they're going to feel like you went dark you know we all know what it feels like when a client goes dark nobody likes it and you know you don't want to do the same thing even though you know you're working you know there might your project contact might be you know you know his boss might be calling him in every every day and be like how's the project going i don't know you know reuben has an updated base camp i have no idea right and that's uncomfortable for everyone philip how about you how do you uh contact people and when I've been on both extremes of the continuum. So, you know, I, I started out as a generalist. I started out with <clears throat> just kind of fumbling my way through projects. And so I did exactly what Jonathan is was identifying as, you know, the, the anti-pattern you want to avoid. So I was doing like hourly projects and the project would start out with, you know, high fives and celebrations all around. And, oh, yeah, we think this will take three months. And then things start to slip and you kind of get into the middle of the project and everyone is, you know, it's pretty bleak. Right. And so I, I've done that and I'm not proud to say it, but I have done that where I'm just like, Oh God, I don't want to uh, talk to this client because I don't have any good news for them. <laughs> and, and like, that's what's going on inside my head when I'm in that place. And so since then I've moved away from hourly billing and, and now just bill a flat rate for uh, a week's worth of effort on a project, which sounds like a bigger time unit, but we don't talk hours, so it doesn't feel like hourly billing anyway. And I have meetup uh, stand-ups every day with whatever client I'm working with. So I work with one client at a time, and we'll have a, you know, we'll schedule for 15 minutes. Sometimes it goes longer every day of the week. And that has been a wonderful discipline for me because it's forced me out of a personal bad habit, which is, and I think I said it actually pretty well there. I feel like if I don't have any good news, I don't, that's the feeling. It's like, it's either, you know, all sunshine and unicorns or I don't want to have the conversation. (laughs) And I think a lot of people are like that. So, you know, having a daily meeting on the, on the calendar and, and having that, you know, ritual and that discipline actually has, for me, has dramatically improved communication. And it just forces me to say, well, you know, yesterday didn't go so well. And here's why. And here's what I'm doing about that. And guess what? Nothing bad happens. And in fact, it's, you know, it's made a really significant improvement in the quality of my client relationships. So, uh, you know, that's been my experience on both ends of the spectrum. Not that you have to do that daily stand-up thing, but boy, does it force you to communicate with your client, whether you're so inclined uh, in your personality or not. Absolutely. absolutely. I, I often describe those sorts of meetings as forcing functions. Like, you know that you're going to have to report to them and say you did something. 
And so you're going to, you're more likely to do something. And even if you haven't done something, then you'll have a thoroughly researched, well-described reason for not moving ahead. And you can ask them, well, I need X and Y and Z in order to move ahead. But you also know that if you do, if, if three or four days in a row you say, oh, I would have gotten something done, but I'm waiting for, then you're going to feel bad. And then hopefully it'll you know get you to do something. Or at least I, I like I like to have that sort of pressure on myself. And I've found that um, if there's a problem to be solved, it, you know, it kind of the client is jumping in there and and trying to help me solve it. It's True. so it's not what I imagine in in the sort of fearful thinking that springs up when you isolate yourself from your client and you think, oh, they're just going to blame me for this or they're going to lose confidence. But it actually, it, in my experience, has facilitated a more uh, you know, joint problem-solving approach that also is very good. Very true. Very true. There's definitely a sense of, oh, they don't want to hear bad news. But actually, they want to solve their problems. And if you can say, I have this problem or we have this problem, let's try to solve it together, right, they're, they're often going to be very positive about it. Yeah, that's been my experience. Yeah. Yeah, same here. Does anybody have like a total horror story? I, I can think of I can think of a couple that will probably sound like horror stories, but really weren't that bad. Anybody well, go first while I while I think of right, yeah, so. mine too. <laughs> so so people will probably freak out when they hear this one, which is that um, when I first went solo, which was about almost ten years ago, one of my first clients came with me from the previous employer, and we worked out a deal where we more or less split the money. Uh, I got the client, but we split the money for X number of, you know, so everybody's happy. And we had a uh, project on the books that I did. It was one of my early fixed, my first attempts at a non-hourly fixed bid value-based project. And I underestimated it by a year. (laughs) And and I continued working on that thing for an extra year. So we we thought it was going to take one year. It took two years. And we had great community. I was, they were great. It was a great client. I'm still friends with the people and we would send Christmas friends and everything. I mean, they were like, I traveled down to visit them on multiple occasions. It was just, they were the most fun, just great. And the communication was really good. They were totally reasonable about, you know, the surprises that come up and we just kept working and working and we finally got it done. And it was obviously my effective hourly rate went down. But it wasn't horrible. I mean, it was still the amount of money that I could live on. And since it wasn't blowing their budget, since the, since the fact that I blew the estimate by an entire year, <laughs> since that wasn't screwing up their finances in any way, then they were cool with it. And they respected the fact that I was sticking to my word about not charging them another dime over the fixed bid. You know, obviously they had some lost opportunity costs and they were hoping to deliver some of these features to their, it was an internal system, but still it was going to affect their ability to service their customers. You know, so they would have rather had it done sooner, but uh, they felt like, you know, everybody was like cool with it. And so if that had been billed by the hour, that would have been, that wouldn't, wouldn't have flown. Uh, so that was probably my biggest, uh, and you know, it's cause it was so early. I estimated it low, but that was probably something that people would consider a disaster. And then I've had some smaller ones that were, you know, basically sh- much shorter engagements where at the end it was like, you know what? I, I just didn't, this didn't work. Like we had an idea of what was going to happen and based on whatever past experience, expertise and all that. And it did, it just didn't work. Like you could see that it didn't work. We had, 
goals for the outcome and I just, just give them their mind. You know, it's like one of the, the benefits of having a, um, a price, you know, is that you can, you know what it is and you can act like it's like a lamp, you know, you can, they can return it basically. <laughs> so I've written my shit, my, I've written like at least two $5,000 checks and that I've returned to clients and, uh, a couple $10,000 checks that I've returned. Um, although those were in those cases, I think it was before the project really started because I, uh, something came up that I realized at the last second, I realized it was going to be a recipe for failure. So yeah, I mean, that's, if you're, I've counseled a, a couple of people, I can think of two occasions when people were like, this client's freaking out. They've mentioned lawyers, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, just send them the money back, dude. You're gonna, it's gonna hurt. But the second, the second you send that check, you're going to feel like a million bucks. You're going to feel like a load of bricks has been lifted off your back. And it works every time. Like if you just, it, it's like not worth, you know, if we're talking five, 10,000 bucks, it's not worth it. It's not worth going to court. It's not worth even having that emotional distress. It's like take the hit and go find a, just redouble your efforts to go find an awesome client instead of a crap one that's like litigious. Boy. I don't know if I have any horror stories that quite match that or any of those. <laughs> I mean, I mean, there's the one of the, the course that I mentioned earlier where I finished the first day and they told me, don't come back. Didn't you have one where you helped somebody with their database? Oh, oh, that was, a, oh, yeah, that's a good horror story. <laughs> oh, yeah, now you reminded me. But that was, that was like, the guy was just a crook. But it's a great story anyway. <laughs> where, like, I got a call. I was heading out to a meeting. And I get a call. Is this Reuben Lerner? Yes. Do you know about Linux? Yes. Listen, my servers are in such a bad state. I need your help. I was like, look, I'm going out to a meeting. Please, 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 can you come to me? So it turns out he was pretty close to where I was having my meeting. So afterwards, after the meeting, I went there. I had an employee at the time who came with me. And the guy said, look, like our system administrator left us. Was it two weeks ago, three weeks ago? We're so stuck. Our servers aren't working. Can you help us? So we worked on it for like two, three hours. My employee went home. I kept working. I pulled an all-nighter. I got his system up and running at like six in the morning. Uh, by the way, hint to those of you who ever do this, tell your wife where you are. Enough said. Anyway, <laughs> uh, I was like, I I'll finish soon. I'll finish soon. And then I'll tell her. Bad idea. Bad idea. Anyway, so I, I get home at like seven in the morning, exhausted, but so happy that I managed to help this guy. And then, of course, it comes time to like, you know, to invoice him. And and I keep helping him a little bit more, and my uh, my employee keeps helping me a little bit more. And I had a business manager at the time who contacted him and said, "Listen, you guys need to pay." And he said, "Oh, we're sending something by fax right now, so this dates a little bit." And the, uh, the we got a letter on the fax saying, "Reuven Lerner is a fraud and a charlatan. He claimed to help us with our servers, but did not. He ruined them, and it was only because the CEO was there watching over him like a hawk that managed to make sure that he didn't destroy our systems uh, more than he did. And you know, it's by the, the skin of our teeth that we managed to get things up and running. And not only are we not paying you, we're going to sue you for I guess they equivalent about ten thousand dollars for damages to our system." So you can imagine I was like shaking when I received this <laughs> and I was so upset and I actually went to a lawyer and we, we, we decided after a little bit of investigation that this guy is just, this guy is a fraud and a crook and probably the reason he didn't have a system administrator anymore was because he had played all sorts of games with that guy or with some chain of previous people and they just found some new sucker to work with him until getting rid of them. So I figured, well, he's not going to sue me and... I'm not going to be able to sue him. And this was just before I went to the U.S. to do the PhD. So I, I just sort of gave up on it. But yeah, that was a real shock to my system. Because until then, 
And even since then, like, even though I have contracts with my clients, I mean, it's really just a formality. Uh, I mean, I think, Jonathan, you've said, like, you only want to work with people with whom you could, like, go out and, you know, have a drink or have fun or spend, want to spend time with. And for the yeah. most part, my clients are totally like that. I love spending time with them, especially the training ones. I mean, they're just great. And this guy, I should have gotten the vibes from the beginning, but I totally didn't. Yeah. And then there was just one more and then I'll, I'll let Philip tell his horror stories too. So there was, there was one where this, uh, again, a nonprofit, I seem to be like, <laughs> by the way, by the way, like I'm sure there are good, wonderful nonprofits to work with and I have worked with some of them. But for whatever reason in Israel, at least the nonprofits tend to be very poorly run and run on a shoestring budget, which means I should really not work with them so much. But any of that. So this nonprofit wanted me to set up like a, a, a forum system. It was like an educational place. They want their teachers and curriculum developers to set it up. And I said, oh, that's fine. And um, the head of the nonprofit wanted his wife to be the graphic designer. And that should have set off alarm bells. Because basically, this was like, again, 10, 15 years ago. And I said, oh, you want to be using Hebrew, Arabic, and English? We'll have to use Unicode. And she was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I don't think I can work on this. And basically, so that was like, that was bad, where she was against everything I was doing. And I did the standard thing of, I went dark on them. Like, I set it up. I figured everything was great. Didn't hear from them. Obviously, it's peachy, right? If I haven't heard from them. And then like a month and a half later, two months later, I get a call saying, where the hell are you? This is terrible. <laughs> and um, and it was such a terrible feeling because I wanted to help them. I wanted things to be good. And of course, if I had known that things were bad, I would have fixed them. But because I hadn't said anything or done anything, they assumed I didn't care. I assumed everything was great. And the miscommunication was basically fatal to the relationship. Yeah. Ruben, you know, you're uh, a seasoned uh, freelancer when you can't even remember all your uh, <laughs> stories. <laughs> yeah, <it's> true. <laughs> Two come to mind for me. One was an hourly project sometime back. It was like a 200 hour project. And uh, I made some, you know, pretty significant tactical errors on my end that involved uh, a subcontractor who chewed up a month of time and, you know, did not deliver on on anything in that time and yada, yada. So I ended up doing like a hundred hours of free work, which doesn't sound that dramatic compared to Jonathan's year of free work, but it was like <laughs> compressed into a short period of time. So it was a very kind of memorable, painful, uh, hundred hours of free work. To me, that's two things that kind of points out the flaw in hourly billing where the freelancer screws up and the client pays for it, right? That's not what happened in the story I'm describing, but I ate it, essentially, which is kind of how it should be, actually. Um, but I, I can imagine somebody else saying, well, sorry, this happened and it's going to take extra time. And so your project's going to go 33% over budget or 50% over budget to add another 100 hours. So... You know, that's a real memorable sort of project gone wrong story and part of what kind of made me say, "Not a, never again, man, <laughs> never again am I going to make those kind of mistakes. And and then more recently, uh, with this subscription service that I provided called My Content Sherpa, I got into an issue that was kind of caused by my inability to scale the service, which really needed to scale to make enough money and, and really function the way it was supposed to. It needed to be kind of run like a virtual agency. And that was a different situation where instead of like one big failure that caused a big kind of blowout in the project, it was a bunch of little failures that added up. <laughs> and so I was in a living hell for three months trying to deliver a backlog of work that had a slowly accumulated kind of like credit card debt tends to do. <laughs> so, um, 
Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that has, has come up that I'd love for us to talk about, maybe we may be kind of covering some old ground here, is, is the idea of there's this perception that contracts are what's going to make those problems not happen, or it's going to be the club that you can beat your client with if things do go wrong. And I bet we all have a somewhat different view on that than the, the kind of conventional view that a contract's going to protect you against a project gone wrong. Yeah, this has come up a couple of times in the past, but I don't think it's been from this angle. I'm not, as the dear listener will probably recall, I'm not a big fan of, I'm, I'm especially not a big fan of contracts because the contract is like, contract is something you do with someone you don't trust. And it's like a prenup and it's just an indication that the relationship isn't ready to me. And I realize that I'm virtually, I, I'm literally the only person I know of my colleagues that is as non-contract focused as in this field. But the flip side of it is the nice thing about contracts is that the if they're written in plain English, they do a good job of getting everybody's expectations in the right place. But I try and put that in the quote. So I do all that getting people on the same page stuff in the quote. And it's just a, an agreement that they sign. There's no like, I have no terms of service or any of that stuff that so often also sent. I just find that it's just, it just triggers the lawyers. Like even if the client's like, oh, we need to review this. And then you're going back and forth and the geez, I sh- maybe I should show this to my lawyer. And like, I'm like, come on, let's just do this, get it done. <laughs> and if you don't like it, I'll give you your money back. It's not like I'm going to, I am so much smaller from a business standpoint than the vast majority of my clients that I would just immediately go bankrupt if any of them sued me, even if I won. You know, it's like Samsung. Am I going to beat Samsung in a lawsuit? No. (laughs) They they might have slightly more and better lawyers than you. It's possible. Yes, it is possible. (laughs) So I'm not going to, I'm just not going to, I just don't care. It's like, I'd just be like, look, if you guys want to sue me out of existence, the contract's not going to protect me. Because just defending it would destroy my cash flow. I'd rather just fold the business immediately and start a new one. Adding on to that, I uh, was involved in a very small lawsuit that the cost of hiring a lawyer was very low. And the amount of money disputed was very low. But it was literally a year of changing the court date around uh, to fit various people's schedules. And in a way, it was like a year of nonstop stress on me. So there's not just the, you know, the dollar, dollars and cents cost, but there's a kind of a, an emotional and psychological cost to even going there, you know, even imagining that you would get something out of, uh, suing somebody. I should have just, uh, in retrospect, I should have, I should have said, you know what? You guys win. Let's, let's work out a payment plan for this dispute. Yeah. I've, I've been in two or three lawsuits, depending on how you want to quantify my divorce. <laughs> um, but I've been in I've been in two business lawsuits, and if you haven't been in one, it is hard to explain how much stress it adds to your life. Even if you know you're right, it doesn't matter. It's this constant anger. It eats you alive. I would just be like, "Are you guys ser- you're seriously going to sue me?" And I would probably just I'd just be like, "All right, you win." I would just totally roll over. And either declare bankruptcy or if I could afford to give them the money back, give them the money back and then just redouble my efforts elsewhere to, uh, to make up for it. It's uh, anyway, we're totally down a rabbit hole here, but <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't see how a contract, the, the nice thing about a contract is that it's a document that people can refer to, to sort of, you know, three months later after people have kind of forgotten the high fives and the kickoff meeting 
to remember what they said, remember what they agreed to. So that I think a document like that needs to, needs to exist. This need to be notarized and signed by a lawyer or approved by a lawyer. Not in my opinion, but I know that I'm in the vast minority there. I mean, I, I have a contract that I use with my clients. Except, actually, I should say, with all my uh, teaching, like that's a totally different kettle of fish because all these big companies, and I mean, Jonathan, you definitely know this better than I do. Even they have POs, right? And a PO is basically a, 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 like a contract. So when I'm going to do a course for Cisco or Sandisk or Apple or something, like they send me a purchase order, and like I'm not going to sign them on my dinky little contract saying you will pay me, right? Like I have this piece of paper that if and when they don't pay, and that's just not going to happen, then I can go to them and 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 like demand it. But I have had a contract for my consulting stuff for a number of years now, and it's really short. And I purposely kept it as ridiculously short as possible. It basically says, I do the work, you pay me, I will give you a receipt, you own everything, except for the open source stuff. Yeah. And, and people have been sort of surprised. I think it's like a page and a half total. And people have been very, very surprised by how short it is. And I, I think I think Chuck had a, a an episode, even of this show before I joined, that they had maybe it was a different one, but they had a lawyer talk to them about, well, you really need to have this and this and this and what happens. This? And I remember hearing that episode and thinking, oh my God, <laughs> I'm going to be sued out of existence. But it's just, <laughs> it's just like, like, cause something will go wrong. But even when things have gone wrong, I mean, I had this client where I did this, they wanted me to translate a, a system they'd done in .NET and SQL Server into Java and Postgres. This is when I actually thought I could be a Java developer, but fine. So I did it. Actually, the thing totally worked. But I was really under the weather when testing it. It was a, it was a mobile app. Like back when mobile apps meant it dealt with SMSs, like text messages. And I went like to take a nap because I was feeling so horrible. And I actually sent out, sent out some crazy number of SMSs during that hour. <laughs> and they were like, so, you know, <laughs> you, you cost us like a few thousand dollars here in SMS fees. And I said, oops. And they said, do you have insurance? And I said, no. And we basically agreed just sort of like, I, I, I had undercharged them, like, or I hadn't yet charged them for some hours I was going to work. And we just sort of called it a draw on that. But I don't think, I think that was the closest I ever came to actually being sued by anyone real. Like that crazy guy was never going to sue me. And then would a contractor help me? No, not really. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I had probably, a friend accidentally. Yeah. I had a friend accidentally spin up the wrong size AWS instance for a client, and it cost them like five thousand bucks for the month, and they didn't <laughs> realize it until the end of the month. Oops. You know, when their fifty dollar bill was five thousand. <laughs> you know, stuff like that happens. Oh yeah, I, I nuked your database. Where's the backup? Oh, we don't have one. Okay, there's going to be a problem there. But uh, you know, I mean, barring negligence. And I mean, that stuff doesn't really happen that often, I suppose, for people who are actually diligent and, you know, not clowns, I guess. Look, it's, it's rare um, for a company, right? Like if you have a contract, if they don't want to pay you, calling them up and saying, hey, we have a contract, you should pay me. That's not going to change it. No, They're just exactly. going to be jerks. Jonathan also is someone who now kind of explicitly avoids using a contract wherever possible. I just... It, you know, it's it's typically seen as a way to deal with risk, and I just deal with risk by splitting a project up into smaller pieces, mm-hmm. which uh, it kind of accomplishes the same thing without saying, okay, you know, here's a gun on the table between us, and whoever gets to it first is going to win, because that's just a terrible, terrible precedent for any kind of relationship. I think we should maybe spend some time talking about what to do after things have gone wrong. Are there yes. kind of ways that you guys have seen to rescue a project that's off the rails? Communication. 
Big yeah. time communication is like and, responsibility. Yeah. I mean, I had a project to, I mean, even a client that I'm working with still where I brought in a graphic designer who I worked with in the past and was really nice. And she was just terrible in that particular project. Like, I mean, she was going through a divorce and she was not feeling so well. All that might be true, but she just did a bad job. And I was the one who had brought her in and it was really looking bad. And I even like was in a dicey situation with the client as a result. And basically I just, put all out there. I said, listen, guys, I love working with you and your company. I want to keep doing it. I totally screwed things up here. That won't happen again. And because we had a good relationship before then, because I think I was so communicative, uh, we kept it going and we have a good relationship to this day, but I was really nervous. Yeah. I don't think reasonable. Again, it goes back to working with people who you like and having mutual trust. And I think no, no reasonable person expects anyone else to be perfect but they do expect people to own it when they screw up. And, you know, it's exactly like Ruben just said. It's like, oh, man, I just totally screwed up. And these are the steps I've, I've fixed it. And these are the steps I've taken to, to make sure that it's not going to happen again. Totally huge apology. And, you know, if there's anything else, like, you know, just whatever. You just fall on your sword and own it. And any reasonable person is just going to be like, that's totally cool. And it, it, it'll flip around the other way too. I've had long-term clients who were supposed to pay me monthly and then something gets screwed up one month and the money doesn't come through and, you know, or they do something, they say they're going to do it or they say they're going to do something and then they don't do it. And, you know, people make mistakes, obviously. So, you know, I think just uh, having a lot of communication and not hiding from it when you screw up, yeah, it makes it just makes a better relationship all the way around. Have you guys ever had to approach a, a rescoping situation? So what, you know, say you start out on a project and the expectations are whatever and you just get into it and you're like, this is not going to happen for whatever reason. Maybe it's not even your fault. It's the limitation of the technology or, you know, something changes and you need to rescope. Are there, you know, ways of approaching that that are helpful that get a better outcome? For me, those are the cases when I've given back the 5,000 bucks where it's like, oh yeah, I thought this was feasible, but now that I'm into it, it's not. And just here's your money back. There are other times when I've, but those are really, you know, you know, $5,000 projects, not, it's very small. And if a situation crops up, or the, the way that I've seen that situation crop up most in the past is where I've done a bad job identifying what the desired outcome is and we've focused too much on the features. And somebody gets a B in their bonnet halfway through once they start to see the system coming together and they're like, oh, you know what we should have asked for? This thing. And this thing, this new wild rainbows and unicorn thing is what we, was what we really need. This is the real thing that we should have asked for. And that's what you have to do now. And that is a, and there is a little bit of a balancing act you have to do there because they might be right, you know, and, you might, you might, it might turn out that the, I don't know, two months of development you've done turned out to be R and D, which helped them realize what they really need to offer to their clients. And so you say, all right, look, I don't want to let you just be, if we keep shifting scope, you're never going to ship anything. So I don't want to let you do that because then all the money you spend with me is going to be wasted. So let's decide, is this new feature really the thing or is the original thing that we've all been talking about for three months actually more important? So let's let's have that value conversation that we really should have had at the beginning. Figure that out. And if they say, well, 
we kind of need all of it, but you know, this, this, the magic feature that we suddenly realized we need is more important. And I say, okay, this is what we'll do. We can pause the existing project and work on the sexy thing, the new thing. I'll give you a quote for that. We'll spin that up. We'll do that. We'll make that work. And then we'll revisit the, the project that's paused and we'll continue where we left off. Or we'll realize, and this is what usually happens, is that we realize that the sexy feature that everybody's all excited about was really just a sugar rush. And two days later, in the light of day, they're like, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it sounded good in the meeting and the sales manager really pitched us on it. But we did a little research and asking around. It's probably not that big a deal. We can save it for V2. And the thing I will not let them do is, or I've never failed to prevent them from doing, is to do both projects, to basically just add a bunch of stuff to the existing project, because that's just a recipe for them. I mean, it's, it's, a, scope, it's a scope nightmare for you, but it's also a recipe for them never shipping. So I always pitch it like, you guys are never going to ship if you keep changing your mind. So how are we going to ensure that you ship? So that's what's worked for me. It hasn't come up that, I mean, maybe three times that's happened to me in, in 10 or 15 years that I put everyone to sleep. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, I'm just trying to think of like, I'm just trying to think of like if I have uh, any, any good stories or insights along these lines and I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. I mean, you kind of owe it to your customers to keep the scope under control. It's not just bad for you if it creeps all over. It's bad for them too. They're not getting free work out of it. They're losing opportunity costs because they're not shipping. So if you, if you pitch it like that, it, it, you'll, if you're talking to the, a business owner or like someone who's, when I say business owner, I don't necessarily mean the owner owner. It's someone who's a business person who's kind of invested in the project. If you're talking to that person, they're going to recognize that, you know, this, this could go on forever and ever if they don't have some discipline on their end of the fence. Sometimes I've, I've talked with uh, potential clients or clients about you know, software projects and they say, oh, there are just so many things we want to do. I say, right, that will never change. You will always have way more things you want to do and way more ideas than time to actually do them. So exactly. you're yeah. always going to have to prioritize and you're always going to have to put some things in the back burner. And you know that's part of what my role is you know, to try to help you figure out, well, we could do X and it'll take six months or we could do Y, it'll take two weeks. Is X really so burningly important that it's worth taking the six months to do it? Or can we chop it up or, or so forth? And that, that sort of perspective definitely, or at least I think, helps them to come to grips with this and then make these decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's a huge, huge source of value for someone to, to get someone to come in from the outside because they're not really emotionally invested in any of it. So it's like, hey, you're going to pay me a ton of money, so let's focus on the high ROI stuff, like the low-hanging fruit first. And yeah, like that feature that you're thinking of is amazing, but it's going to be very expensive too, so let's not forget that. You know, for me, the ability to do that with a client, to, to come to a client and say, you know, I hear you saying you want this, but maybe that's not a great idea. Here's the reasons why. Yeah, that was a huge mindset shift, and it wasn't something that just happened overnight or I said, I'm going to start thinking differently. It was a little bit of a progression, but sure, that is, to me, that's like the secret sauce in being able to fix things is come to your client and not just say, well, what do you want to do? That'll be another 50 hours, right? But to be able to say, here's what's going wrong. Here's how I think we could fix it. You know, feel free to contribute your ideas as well. And we're going to figure this out together. That, that, that seems like maybe the 
the key kind of mindset difference at the heart of having fewer projects that go off the rails. I had something just a few months ago, maybe even like eight months ago at this point, where I had these people call me and say, oh, we, 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 saw, we saw that you're a Ruby expert. Would you be able to take on, you know, take on the maintenance of our Ruby software or our Rails software? And I looked it over and my employee looked over and we were like, yeah, yeah, we can, we can definitely work on this. And they were sort of constrained in terms of budget. And we said, fine, fine. That means you have to constrain your scope. Um, and we agreed that we would do a monthly retainer. And every month we would sort of chip away at what was necessary. And it all sounded good. And, of course, they came and said, oh, we have so many things we want to do. I said, okay, you know, again, like it's true for everyone. have to prioritize. What is, like, the most important thing you have to do? And so then they gave me only, like, half a thousand things as opposed to a thousand things. I said, okay, we're going to have to work on this, guys. But we, we actually had a meeting to sort of start to prioritize. And maybe about 10 minutes into the meeting, they started demonstrating it to us. And they said, yes, and, and here is where we can go in. And if a customer has a problem, we go in and we see their credit card number. And I was like, what? And they said, oh, yes, we can go in and check people's credit card numbers to see if they're actually ex- ex- accurate. I said, are you telling me that you store people's credit card numbers in clear text? They said, yes. Is this a problem? I said, okay, we've now found the top priority to fix. We will be <laughs> fixing this first. And they were like, why? I said, because otherwise your credit card companies will shut you down. And, and so they sort of very reluctantly agreed that we can work on this. And we worked on it for the first month, about the number of hours that we'd agreed for the retainer. And we came back to them and said, okay, we've fixed this. Can we get our second month's retainer? Like, it's, you know, you haven't paid yet. They were like, what do you mean? You haven't done any work. And we said, we fixed your credit card problem. They were like, oh, well, that was something that you thought was a priority. It wasn't a thing that we thought was a priority. Um, so we're not going to pay you. And like, once you show us something that we actually think is important, then we'll pay you. And that was where it ended. And, and, and it was just such a mismatch of expectations. But also, like, I thought by changing these priorities, it was clear that we were on board that we want to make sure their business survives and isn't sued out of existence or charged for fraud or whatnot. I guess I didn't do a good job of explaining it, or they just didn't care. And I'm guessing it's B, actually. You should have just taken one of the credit card numbers. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a great example of something I talk about sometimes. I think I have an article on it called First Do No Harm, First Do no Harm where it's easy for people who are software developers and sort of have that efficiency automation mindset to go into a a client situation, maybe walk the manufacturing floor, walk through the office and see people, you know, printing out emails to fax them to someone else. And you're seeing these inefficiencies everywhere. But if they aren't the things that the client, if they are not problems that the client recognizes, telling the client about the problems is almost always fruitless Mm -hmm. because they just don't care. So in a situation that you were in, if I were in a situation like that, I'm not sure what I, I, I think what I would have done was been like, when I discovered that, I would be like, I'm not comfortable working on this system until this is fixed. So you can either make it a priority or not, but I'm out of here if you don't make it a priority. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't even work on a system where someone could come back later and be like, oh, you had access to 150,000 credit card numbers for six months. Yeah, I just don't want it. I, you thought in the backup, I mean, it's like, a travesty. So, you know, if they, it's, I, that's a great example, actually, of that. Like, if the client doesn't care, the client doesn't care. It's not, I can just a, see your, your, you can just see your hand trembling there, Jonathan. Oh, <laughs> God, if I saw that. You know, but that's, I, I don't, I won't go down this rabbit hole, but that is a tangent onto a huge discussion about how do you create a value proposition that actually makes sense to your clients? Cause, uh, like Amy Hoy's, 
term for this is pilling the dog. <laughs> it's like, here's some medicine. You know your client should take it, but they don't want to take it. <laughs> good, good luck getting it down their throat. It's just, it's not, you know, you're swimming upstream. You're does, swimming upstream dog, both ways. Wait, where does the dog come into this? <laughs> okay, pilling the dog. You want to give your dog some medicine. You don't just give them the medicine. You wrap it in, you know, some food or piece of bacon or whatever, right? So you've got to make it appealing. But what you're really doing is trying to convince somebody to do something they don't want to do. They don't see the value in it. So that's not a very good way to, you know, val- create a value proposition for your services. Anyway, I, w- I won't go any further down that rabbit hole, but it's uh, it-, it brings up an interesting point. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, we should probably uh, wrap up and move on to picks. Uh, you guys have any uh, final suggestions, stories, words of advice uh, for people thing, trying to avoid problems? I mean, I know I'm always beating a dead horse on this one, but one thing I've noticed from the conversations is that the most painful off-the-rails projects are always the hourly ones. Like, if you're billing by the hour, that's when it gets the most vitriolic. You know, that's, that is because you basically screwed the estimate, lost track of, lost control of the scope, and the client is got you know they're they're into you for the full estimate and you're not even and they've got nothing to show for it and you and as far as you can tell you're probably not even halfway done so everybody's just mad you know and if this is a job that people you know if 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 you are a freelancer and you sort of you've left a w2 job or you left a full-time employment with a regular type of gig this is not what you wanted you didn't want to go to go you know owning your own business doesn't have to mean you're constantly fighting with your customers and i i really think that uh shifting away from hourly billing solves a lot of these problems it's not not trivial to do but uh it's a source of a lot of the uh ajita I, I I must admit that when you start talking about this like when we first started talking when you came on i think as a guest on the show uh, at some point, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this guy with his, like, non-hourly billing, I'm doing hourly billing, and it's working just great. Mm-hmm. And over time, I mean, I'm I'm not doing the value-based so much. It's more, like, mostly uh, sort of productized consulting with the training. But it is such an emotional relief. Massive. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm not, I mean, exactly as you say, I'm not keeping track of hours. We all know, like, I go in, I teach a course, they're paying me a certain amount, that's it. And you know what? If I end an hour early, if I end an hour later, no one cares so long as everyone is satisfied. And it's just such a relief. So, yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally buy into it now. You were right. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Feels good, doesn't it? <laughs> Every once in a while it happens. Yeah. I mean, for me, the big takeaway is both from my own personal experience and what I'm hearing you guys say is uh, just the communication uh, and yeah, I, know, I know Jonathan and I have remarked about this before offline that, uh, you know, a lot of introverts get into freelancing, a lot of kind of uh, lone wolf types. And uh, surprise, you got into a relationship business. So, uh, <laughs> the, you know, the thing that makes relationships work is communication. And if you are, uh, you know, kind of putting off a difficult conversation with a client, it will not be as bad as you fear that it will. And it will probably relieve an amazing amount of stress, which you were kind of blaming your client for, but really it was the situation. So you just, you can't have 
can't talk too much and too frequently to your client. And the longer you wait to have that conversation, the worse it will get. So exactly. if you're like worried about talking to them now, better talk to them now because a week from now, you'll feel even worse and, and they might be angrier. Right, which just makes the conversation more tense and less likely to end well. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So, Philip, you got any picks for us this week? I have a pick. Uh, it's a book called Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey A. Moore. Oh, oh, I love it's a book that's kind of meant for product people, but has some lessons that I think are so relevant for uh, anyone in professional services. Those lessons are mostly about marketing and mostly about the how you do marketing in a way that maximizes the effectiveness of word of mouth, which is like this little uh, unpaid intern that's out there bringing you business at all times uh, if you can make effective use of it. And uh, this particular book has just got some great advice around that. Terrific. Jonathan. Yes, I will point people to that post that I just mentioned called First Do No Harm. It's at uh, expensiveproblem.com slash first do no harm with dashes in between the words. Uh, so people can check that out. Um, and also, second pick is, since we talked about contracts a little bit, I saw recently that Paul Jarvis, who we've had on the show, released a sort of a boilerplate contract for freelancers recently which looked really, really good. And he, I have a deep and abiding respect for Paul, so I'm sure it's awesome. Uh, so if people are into contracts, then they can check that out. I can't find the link, so we'll put it in the show notes. But uh, yeah, so you should, you should definitely at least review that and see if it might suit your needs. Excellent. Uh, and my pick is a new book that I've been using and working through, uh, the Facebook Ads Manual by, and I'm sure I'm butchering her name, uh, Moika Mars. And we're going to try to have her on the show uh, in the near future. I thought she was on already, and she said she wasn't. So we're, we're going to try to book her. And I've been doing, I mean, I, I have a few products out. I'm working on a few new products, and I thought it would be fun to advertise on Facebook. And I spent a ton of money and got nowhere. And so I try, I'm trying this book. I'm still ramping up and still learning how to do it, but it's been very nicely pointing out uh, how to do things, how to break down a problem. And for someone like me who uses Facebook but really didn't understand how different parts of it worked, it's really been a very nice explainer. Um, and she's been very responsive, and I'm now going to flutter with email, right? But I, she's been very responsive to uh, suggestions for how to improve the book and questions that I had about it as well. So uh, if you're interested in doing advertising online and you want to target very specific uh, audiences, then Facebook seems to be a good way to go about that. And this book is a nice way to guide you. And that is our show for this week. So thanks guys for joining us, joining me. And thanks everyone for listening. Chuck will be back hopefully in a week or two. His wife just gave birth to their fifth child. So we are very excited for him. And when he recovers, we'll be happy to have him back. <laughs> anyway, we will hear, hear, you will hear us all next week, hopefully. Thanks everyone. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.